You're listening to TIP. Why was value investing work? What logic is there for value, value investing? Because, for example, if a stock is cheap today, obviously a stock could be cheap. So why must we assume that sometime in the future the stock will get back to fair value? Is this a magic formula? Why is it? On today's episode, I chat with Milton Berg, who is the CEO and Chief Investment Strategist of MB Advisors. Milton has a fascinating career and investment style as he first started in the industry inspired by the teachings of Benjamin Graham and David Dodd, but later shifted to technical analysis and has created a great reputation in the field for himself. He has also worked with some of the titans of the hedge fund world, including George Soros, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and Michael Steinhardt, before starting his own firm. In this discussion, you'll learn more about Milton's views about markets, his belief on what drives stock prices to their intrinsic value over time, how his views about markets differ from traditional value investors such as Benjamin Graham. He covers some of the common misconceptions people have about Graham's investment strategy and his criticisms of traditional value investing. Milton also gets into how he developed a framework for spotting major market tops and bottoms and explains whether he believes markets are at a turning point today or if he believes there's more downside to come. All right, with all of that said, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Milton Berg. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Milton Berg. Welcome to the show. Hello, Rebecca. Nice meeting you. I've been really looking forward to this discussion, and I wanted to begin by talking about your background as an investor, because as I understand it, you initially focused on fundamental analysis inspired by the teachings of Graham and Dodd, but then you later shifted to technical analysis and worked with some legendary investors in the hedge fund world before starting your own research and advisory firm. So I was hoping you could share with us what motivated your transition to become a technical analyst and just what drew you to this strategy. Great. Well, there's some misconceptions about Graham and Dodd. Maybe I can sort of discuss a little bit about Benjamin Graham's investment philosophy, how it worked, whether it worked or not. I originally got into this business of taking analysis looked to me like, you know, voodoo, people looking at charts and lines and crossing and things, all kind of crazy stuff, which made no sense. You're buying a company, you're buying a stock. Of course, Yali is important. I really spent my college days and days in the early in the field becoming a professional Benjamin Graham type analyst. In rigorous security analysis, analyzing balance sheets, by fighting good companies. I went to a uh, meeting of the New York Society of Security Analysts, goes back to 1979, and a fellow named Ned Davis, who at that time was a chief market strategist at J.C. Bradford, he made this presentation. And he basically made a simple presentation about how some sentiment indicators work far better in calling market turns than um, fundamental valuation uh, analysts. And uh, that sort of struck me. I mean, how can this market... Uh, Data, there's nothing to do with a particular company. How could that have some sort of predictability in what the market's going to do? And that really was my first initiation to technical analysis. But then I started realizing in reading Graham and Dodd's book, he himself said that his rigorous valuation analysis does not really work. For example, as you know, Benjamin Graham 
in the Great Depression, his value analysis did not help him. His, his portfolio, he had a partnership. His partnership lost 80 to 85% during the Great Depression. So what he did didn't protect him from that great market decline. And then he realized that not only did his approach not help him during the Great Depression, but the Great Depression got him very scared. And he spent the rest of his career worrying about the next Great Depression. And that's why he came up with this valuation analysis. He talked about buying stocks below the net asset value. I mean, he looked to find stocks that are so, so cheap that even if you had a Great Depression, there's a good chance to be able to get out of it somehow in the future at the price you paid for it. His system really was a system of protecting us from the kind of a depression and the kind of market crash that he never expected, he never anticipated, he couldn't protect himself from. Now, however, the, the last Great Depression was in the 1920, late 1920s, early 1930s, and Graham was in the business from in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And his valuations didn't work because the market kept going up, even the market kept going above his, uh, his valuation parameters. So Benjamin Graham himself had to revise his valuation formulas multiple times. He revised it in the 40s, he revised it in the 60s. And finally, in 1970, Benjamin Graham publicly said, rigorous security analysis no longer works, it's no longer necessary. And he advised other formulas for buying stocks based on P ratios, historical price action, and so on. So although Benjamin Graham's idea of buying value was an idea that uh, makes sense and maybe works somewhat, he himself was very confused by market action. And he, I can't think he himself proves that value investing is the greatest thing to be involved in, and he himself again, and his greed changed his mind. Now, why was value investing work? What logic is there for value, value investing? Because, for example, if a stock is cheap today, obviously a stock could be cheap. So why must we assume that sometime in the future the stock will get back to fair value? Is this a magic formula? Why is it? So this is really a question that was asked to Benjamin Graham in front of Congress in 1954. And this is very important to understand how value investing works. There's a Senator Fulbright. In 1954, the stock market, the Dow Jones Industrial, got back to where it was in 1929. 45 years later, the market's back at its peak. So people are wondering, or Congress is wondering, hey, the market is back to its price in 29. Maybe there'll be another market crash. You know, Congress always worries about the wrong things, so they worried there'll be another market crash 25 years later as the market reached the same level. And they brought Benjamin Graham, who was considered the expert of market valuation, a professor in Columbia Business School. He's running a very large investment partnership. They called him into Congress. The date was March 11th, 1955, roughly 68 years ago. And the following question was asked by Senator Fulbright to Benjamin Graham. I'll quote it, I'll read it in quotes. When you find a special situation, and you decide, just for illustration, that you can buy it for $10, and it's actually worth $30, and you take a position, but you cannot realize a gain until other people decide it's worth $30. How is that process brought about? Is it by advertising? What happens? So basically, Graham was asked the question, why does value investing work? If a stock can be cheap today, why can't it be cheap forever? If a stock can be overpriced today, why can't it be overpriced forever? Now, Benjamin Graham's answer was following, I'm going to quote, and he says to this question, that is one of the mysteries of our business, and it's a mystery to me as well as to everybody else. But we know from history and experience that eventually the market catches up with value. There was no great fundamental understanding of value investing. He looked at history. He said, well, if you buy a stock that's cheap, eventually you'll be able to get out of it. He really was looking at value investing as a form of technical analysis. And since he called it a mystery, I said to myself, well, why should I get involved in the mystery of value analysis? Let me be involved in other mysteries of technical analysis. Let me broaden the, the mystery and history of the stock market and try to find other methods of picking stocks and other methods of trying to understand uh, whether to be in a market or not to be in a market and so forth. Now, I, I, again, I must stress that Benjamin Graham, th these works are published, really, really never got it right. He was always behind the curve. He's always suggesting the market is overvalued, the market can go up, and then he'd raise his parameters, but he never raised his parameters where the market actually was. 
So that's what got me to look at technical analysis. Now, technical analysis, the approach that I use is a sort of unique type of approach. I don't really look at squiggly lines. I don't really look at, at breakouts and breakdowns and moving averages. We have our own uh, type of indicators that we use. But the background basically is I began as a real fundamentalist. I believe in fundamental analysis. Fundamental analysis makes a lot of sense. You want to buy a bond, you know, you wonder whether the company's going to be bankrupt, go bankrupt or pay off their interest and so on. When it comes to the stock market, there's so many more factors other than valuation. That's what we got involved in and using what we call market analysis and indicators we've corrected, we've um, indicated we've um, discovered and so on. Yeah, that was such a great backstory. Thanks for sharing that. I want to dive into your strategy a little bit later in the discussion. I'm super curious to dig into your perspective on markets a bit because you just outlined the perspective of markets from a traditional value investor such as Benjamin Graham. But how do you view markets and particularly the randomness in markets or if they're not random at all? Yeah, well, let's look at that. You know, unfortunately, uh, you know about Rex Sinclairfield and Roger Emmonson. They put out a book basically called Stock Bonds, Bills, and Inflation. And it looks at history of the stock market, history of the bond market, way back to the early 1900s. And they actually made predictions based on it. They looked at the stock market and did some sort of very physical system. They published this, in, I think, in the 1980s. So look at the volatility in the market the last 80 years. Look at the rates of change in the market the last 80 years. Look at the standard deviation of returns over the last 80 years. And what we saw in the last 80 years is what you could expect over the, over the future. Now, that would only make sense. It doesn't really make sense because the stock market is a dynamic force. Why must we assume that the rates of return that we have over the last 80 years will continue in the future? Many things can change. Our country could change from capitalist to communist. You know, you could have um, a run on banks. You could have uh, the currency um, devalued through inflation. Many things can happen in the future that did not happen in the past. So one of the mistakes many analysts make, I look at the stock market in the past, analyze here, things that happen in the future. Now, exactly what happened in 1987, the great crash, the SP 500 declined over 20% in one day. And somebody asked Roger Emmetson the following question. I read your book about statistical analysis of the stock market. Based on your book, it never in the history of the stock market should decline 20% in one day because it never did decline 20% in one day in the past, in the past 80 years. And he actually puts this question in his book and he says, well, let's look at the monthly returns. We didn't create an outlier in the monthly returns. Basically, he was basically fudging. The stock market is not a physical system. By virtue of the fact that in order to understand stock price movements, he wraps up the history, that suggests that is not something to be analyzed because you take a pair of dice and you want to analyze statistically what are the chances of getting the uh, 12, what are the chances of getting uh, uh, snake eyes and so on. You don't have to look at the history of the dice. Just look at the numbers and use statistical analysis. By virtue of the fact that you have to look at the history of the stock market in order to understand how it will perform in the future, that itself tells you that the stock market is really not analyzable. It's really random, basically. Because uh, who says what happened in the past will happen in the future? There's nothing inherent in the system of stocks to tell you that the future will be like the past. So right away, I look at the stock market a little differently than these statisticians do. I say you really can't use rigorous statistical analysis on the stock market. Once you're having a history and experience, it's no longer a, a system because the system is now dynamic. However, what do we look at? Well, what we do look at is rarities. We believe, like the modern portfolio theorists believe, that on a daily basis, the stock market move, movement is random. Random. I don't know what's going to happen to do tomorrow. I don't know the market going to do a week from now. I can't predict it. On a general basis, market movements are random. However, at turning points, the action of the market is not random now. When I say the action of the market is not random, I don't mean the, the daily movement of the stock prices. I mean the underlying indicators that occur at market turning points are not random. They're very rare 
and they occur at turning points, and great pro- and they, they give a great probability where the market's going to rally, or the market's going to decline. And it's these kind of of um, kind of information that we look and always realizing, always recognizing that a stock market is not some sort of machine, and that we're only working on probabilities. And some things that happen in the past won't happen in the future. But we do believe that uh, although the stock market on a general basis is random, at major turning points, sometimes at minor turning points, the market gives you information that allows you to make a high probability call prediction or call projection or call a trade based on the information the market is generating. So I just want to tie this together because we have quite a big community of value investors who follow um, strategies. Value investing is terrible. It's suicidal value investing. I mean, unfortunately, as you know, I don't want to mention any names, but there's one great world-famous value investor who managed over $22 billion of, of mutual funds because uh, he was a value guy. When the markets weren't cheap, he wouldn't buy stocks. And he wouldn't buy them cheap. He did very well for a number of years. And unfortunately, he committed suicide because the market was overvalued from basically the late 1990s until you know uh, till now. It's basically overvalued. He wasn't invested, and people were pulling money out of his funds. And he went down from $22 billion to less than $2 billion, and he decided to take his life, which is very, very sad. But the point is you can't invest in the market being only a value investor. You never own an Apple, you'll never own a Microsoft, you'll never own it. Many of these great growth stocks that were never really fitting with uh, Benjamin Graham's value investing. So I say value, I call it suicidal because I've seen people lose their careers because it sucks to value. When I started in the business, we talked about how I my transition. I wrote an article about Barron's, this is in 1980. I tried to write a book from Barron's. I basically was pointing out using Graham and Dodd's security analysis book, you know, the book for market analysts. And I proved that the stock market is way, way overvalued and we should not have any bull markets ahead. The market must decline. And I basically did what Benjamin Graham was doing. The Benjamin Graham always found the market overvalued. But I realized, fortunately, early in my career, that value, if you rise strictly on value, you will not be successful. I really, I really challenged, find me someone who rise strictly on value has been successful. And don't mention Warren Buffett, because read Warren Buffett's biography. He switched sometime in the uh, in the early 80s from following rigorous statistical analysis and buying stocks that were very, 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 very cheap based on value analysis. And he decided through the advice of Charlie Munger to buy stocks that are not necessarily very, very cheap, but they're good companies that are growing. And that's how uh, Warren Buffett became the great investor. He decided to buy companies and buy stocks. I remember back in the 1980s, uh, Warren Buffett was invested in stocks like VF Corp and um, Candy and Harmon because they were deep, deep undervalued stocks. But subsequent to that, he started investing in companies. So he invested in Coca-Cola, one of his famous investments. Coca-Cola wasn't a, a deep value stock. It was a basically a growth stock that was trading at their fair value. So even uh, the ideas that Benjamin Graham puts forth in his books are no longer followed by successful value investors. Successful value investors themselves have um, graduated from Benjamin Graham's type of investing analysis. And those who stick to Benjamin Graham's type of investment of value analysis really have not done well in the business. I can't find any to have. And that's the Koya Fund, if you want to agree to uh, follow of, of Benjamin Graham. So you really don't see it. There's a great uh, market analyst who's been out of the market for about 12 years now. He, he, uh, he's on Twitter and he... Uh, he has some mutual funds and they haven't done anything because he's suggesting based on Benjamin Green's analysis of the markets, we got to go down another 60%. That might happen, maybe go down 60%, but if you're going to sit waiting 12 years for that to happen, there's no way you're going to maintain a business and get a, get a good return. So that's why I say that the value analysis really doesn't work. It's never been proven to work, pure value analysis. And um, everybody uses leave more than just value analysis to do their uh, to do their market investments. I even know uh, this fellow, uh, John Templeton, when he was interviewed by Forbes 20 years ago, 30 years ago, he said, if I buy two stocks that are equally undervalued, I'll buy the one that is starting to move. 
Now, what does that mean? That's checking analysis. Yeah? Two stocks are equally undervalued. But why the one that is starting to move? If you're a real value investor, you'll buy the one that hasn't started to move because it's a little bit cheaper. So people realize it's far more to the market than value analysis. And to be honest, Benjamin Graham, people don't realize this, but Benjamin Graham himself was under the impression that it's far more to the market than value analysis. And I'll just quote from his book again, if that's okay. He says, the influence of what we call value factors over the market price is partial and indirect. Partial because it frequently competes with purely speculative factors, which influence the price in the opposite direction, and indirect because it actually is an intermediary of people's sentiments and decisions. He says basically that the market doesn't move strictly on value. The market has many other factors, including sentiment, psychology, technical factors, and speculative factors. And what we try to do is not focus on value, but focus on these other factors that move stocks. It's here we can do to get sort of an edge in investing in the stock market. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. 
I want to dive into one more Benjamin Graham quote that is often quoted. I think Buffett said it in, he was paraphrasing Benjamin Graham in 1987. In the short run, the market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. I wanted to get your interpretation of this and your perspective on what this means for market performance in the short run versus long run. Is it more based on psychology or is it fundamentals? I am so glad you asked me this question because Buffett got it wrong. His great teacher never said what Warren Buffett said he said. Never said it. I'll read the words of Benjamin Graham. I have it in front of me as well. And this is quotes from Screen House on page 42 and page 43. The ritual published in the 1920s, 1930s. He says the following. In other words, the market is not a weighing machine. That is, he doesn't say it is not a weighing machine over the short term. He says the market is not a weighing machine on which the value of each issue is recorded by an exact and impersonal mechanism in accordance with specific qualities. Rather, we say, said Benjamin Graham, the market is a voting machine where our countless individuals register choices which are the product partly of reason, partly of emotion. What Benjamin Graham was saying is the market is always and ever a voting machine. In order for the price of the stock to change, someone has to decide to buy and someone has to decide to sell. So in any given transaction, it's a voting machine. Now, if it's true that over the long term, a stock is a weighing machine, well, look, let's look at Warren Buffett's own stock. His stock is around, what, for 50 years already? And in his latest data report, he discussed how his stock has fluctuated up 20%, down 20%, up 20%, down 20% in the last year, although the value hasn't changed. Isn't Warren Buffett's stock a long-term stock? If it's true that over the long term, the market is a weighing machine, about now, in the year 2022, shouldn't the Warren Buffett stock be valued as a weighing machine? Shouldn't it not fluctuate? Of course not. The market is always and ever a voting machine. The market is never, ever a weighing machine. Occasionally, the weight of the, the, the weighing machine and the voting machine coincide. But Benjamin said, if you buy a stock, it's cheap. Eventually, the stock will get back to its value. But that's not because the market becomes a, a weighing machine. That's because the typical fluctuation of a stock takes it back to true value. We don't know why that happens, but it happens through voting. It doesn't happen through weighing. So Warren Buffett's quote is incorrect. People, I've heard this quote uh, it was, uh, repeated many, many times, and it's not the way markets work. Markets are totally, always and ever voting machines based on psychology, based on sentiment, based on speculation, never ever based on the true fundamental of a company. There's no mechanism that allows the true fundamentals of a company to show up in a stock price. The only mechanism is through the voting of buying and selling. Plenty of that question. How can I get too passionate about this? I'm glad to hear your answer on that. I have never heard that corrected before. So I'm glad that you are here today on this show to give us the meaning behind that quote, because I have heard that so often. And so in a sense, then if someone's, I guess, philosophy as an investor is that they pick stocks because they believe they are undervalued. I just want to clear this up for listeners. You're saying with your views of the market that the only way that it reaches its intrinsic value is because of randomness, this voting in the market. It's not because some catalyst will make it go to its intrinsic value. Well, there is a catalyst if there's a, let's say it'll be a takeover. But even the takeover, how many takeovers have you had above intrinsic value? How many companies did takeovers and they pay too much for a stock, right? So even a takeover is nothing to do with value. It's a sentiment of the company that's buying the stock. The market, there's no methodology at all for a market, a stock, a stock that trades in a market to trade its value. The only mechanism is 
people buying and people selling, which in effect is only voting. So yes, I disagree. I don't want to say it's random, but when Benjamin says historically has found, he said it's a mystery. But historically, you buy cheap stock, it's going to get back to value. Well, historically, you buy your stock because the five-day volume is the greatest in 14 years, and the stock's down 60% of its high. Historically, most of those stocks also go back and gain 40, 30%, 40%. So are you going to say that now the market is a technical machine? No, the many factors going to the market. But ultimately, hopefully, it all has to do with voting and voting is psychology, voting is sentiment. Of course, people vote because of fundamentals. If they're an economic crash or a recession and people have to, and they need money to, to pay for their uh, mortgage, they need money to get for food on the table, they'll sell their stocks to get the money. But that is also a voting decision. It might be based on some fundamentals, but why sell that stock? Maybe they should sell the gold they have in the safe, and maybe they should, should sell the house and then they pay a mortgage on it. It's all a decision based on personal factors, nothing to do with the intrinsic value of a company. I'm adamant about this, and that people say, and I say, people who follow true value of investment have never been very successful, never been very successful. Benjamin Maria does not follow true value investing. I mean, the kind of Benjamin Ray spoke about, of course, He's very good. He's a very good market timer. Uh, excuse me, Warren Buffett, excellent market timer. When stocks are expensive, he builds up his cash and he buys when stocks are, when, when the market comes down. He claims he's buying because stocks are cheap. That could be true. But there are many other factors that take place at a market low other than stocks being cheap. So it, it might be a coincidence that when he buys the stocks are cheap, but that is not necessarily the factor that gets the stocks to move up. As you know, it's very often stocks can be cheap and get cheaper. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway is a great example. Not for the fact that Warren Buffett used Berkshire Hathaway as a means of buying other stocks that company went totally bankrupt. Even in this interview, you read about his position in Washington Post or one of the other, uh, I'm not sure exactly which newspaper he bought. He said it's only by chance, by the luck of God, that he was able to come out of it. Okay, one of his competitors went bankrupt. He didn't know when he bought that cheap stock that your competitor would go bankrupt. He was far more involved in strictly value. And again, there's no mechanism. No mechanism of value to be reflected in a stock. There is a mechanism for sentiment to be reflected in the stock. Even if you're going to say a stock is cheap based on dividends, the only mechanism for the stock to uh, remain at this level is because people want those dividends. Now, that could change. They may decide they don't need the, the high income, they need a lower income. Everything is in flux. Everything is based on psychology. Everything is based on decision. Everything is based on buying and selling, which is all a voting machine and is never, never, ever a winning machine. I want to dive into your investment strategy though now because your strategy is centered around identifying market tops and bottoms, a skill that you've honed over the three decades of market analysis. So could you talk a little bit about your framework, including how you developed it and the methods you use to identify significant turning points in the market? Well, first I have to point out that what I do we never deal in, in uncertainties. We admit we're only dealing in probabilities. Maybe some people have to think that they're dealing in certainties, but we tell our clients and we understand that whatever we do, you're dealing in probabilities. I mean, uh, you know, in the market today, will there be a recession? Let's assume if people pound the table that there'll be a recession, are they willing to bet their life on it? Do they have 100% certainty? Of course not. Every decision that people make in the stock market is, is a decision based on probabilities. So, First thing we recognize is, is that many indicators that we use do have a, a 100% track record. and may only have a 70% track record or 80% track record, but you can't like, really can't expect more than that because even if they had a 100% track record, if I buy, I buy, I'm a buy indicator that she goes 14 times in the last 100 years, and each time the market held its low by never, never declined more than 2% and had a bull market follow, right? It happened 14 times in a row. That doesn't tell me it's going to happen next time because, as I say, in theory, 
there's a number of days for the stock market. The stock market continue forever. And we only have a short period of 100 years of history. Maybe those 14 years were the outlier. 14 signals were an outlier and everything else will be the proper signal. What I'm trying to point out is it very important for people who are watching the show to know that we only deal in probabilities. There's no such thing. We feel there's no such thing as dealing in certainties. Many great investors made many mistakes. He didn't really make a mistake. He made the right decision. It's just that the decision was based on probability. And the probability don't always go in his favor. There are mistakes people make when they don't follow the proper judgment and uh, or don't follow the proper discipline. That's a mistake. But if the stock goes against you, and your market projection goes against you, that doesn't mean you made a mistake. That just means that if the probability was 80%, that hit the 20% probability where it's not going to work out. That's the first thing you want to say. Number two, what I want to say is we did already discuss that we believe that on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, stock market fluctuations generally are random. It can't be predicted. But what we do believe is that at turning points, there are factors that show up in the stock market that are no longer random and give you a high probability trade. And I compare this somewhat to in the modern day, if someone has it, wants to analyze his heart, or the doctor wants to analyze the health of someone's heart, I guess they use MRIs nowadays, the CAT scans, or analyze someone's brain. They have MRIs and CAT scans, they can see the brain. But years ago, you needed an EKG, and the doctor would make a probabilistic decision on the health of this patient based on the data that came on an EKG. Now, an EKG tells you nothing about the physical nature of the heart. It only works probabilistically. It's telling you some sort of waves coming from the beat uh, of the heart, and it gives the physician some sort of idea of the health of that health in that, uh, that heart that they could be wrong. Or analyze the other diseases like cancer or so, it's just probability. Now, of course, nowadays they're able to see the objects through modern technology. But you don't have that kind of technology in the stock market. You just don't have it. All you have is this EKG. All you have is data being transmitted by the market. And that's what we look at. We look at the data. Again, we look at data that's not random. Data that takes place every day is not going to give us any edge. If the market's up 5%, 2% today, or down 2% tomorrow, up 1%, that, these are just random fluctuations on the bell curve. So sometimes you're up 2%, sometimes you're up a quarter of a percent in a day. Sometimes you have your, the market goes up uh, three days in a row, somebody goes down three days in a row, it's just random. But we look at for, we look on the bell curve, we look for the tails, things that are not random. And generally, the things we look at, not only that are they random, they're reflective of some sort of euphoria or panic on the part of the market participants, those voting participants. We're looking for something that's reflective of the euphoria panic because that's usually when turning points take place. Now, this is, we have many, many disciplines, many, many kinds of indicators, but this is basically the idea. The idea is that if the market bottomed on October 12, 2022, there are many, many indicators we saw on, around that period, late September, early October, that were rare and that were uh, reflective of panic and suggested that based on history, there's enough selling pressure in the market that the market will have to turn up. But that doesn't tell you necessarily, you know, exactly the, the pattern that the market will follow on the way up. It just tells you that was a good low. Once you know there's a good low, you know the next row can only be up because that, that low will hold. And that's basically the, the framework for what we do. I want to dive into that a bit more because some investors might be wondering how this works in more detail because if you're thinking about a turning point in the market many people are wondering where is going to be the bottom of the market in our current situation but what would suggest that we have seen a market bottom here and then things are better would you have to see volume increase let me give you some ideas about framework exactly what we're looking at. We have to look at rear factors. We don't necessarily look at one rear factor in the market. We look at combination of those factors that take place at turning points. 
We also did something called day counts. For example, the S&P, the, the Russell declined from 13% to February highs, and it's held its low for what is it, four or five, six, it held its low for maybe not four or five days since then. And we look at, it's really held digital lows, we look at counts at market turning points. In other words, the market makes a low, we count four days, five days, six days from the last corrective low and having them lower. You see what kind of data the market generate? And this data consists of the type of data that are generated at previous market lows that have held. So, for example, what do we look at? I'll give you a, a historical example, a great example, because it's uh, it's uh, nothing to do with the current market. But give you an example of something we've looked at. Maybe some of the viewers are familiar with the, word, with the indicator called Trend. Trend was an, an indicator, I guess it was discovered or uh, publicized by a fellow named Richard Arms. It's also called the Arms Index. What the trend measures is two things combined. It measures the ratio of advances of declines in the markets in New York Stock Exchange. The ratio of advances of decline is 1,000 stocks up and 500 stocks down. It's a two-to-one ratio. It also measures the volume of stocks that are moving up and the volume of stocks that are moving down. So if there's a, thousand, a million shares trading on the upside and half a million shares trading on the downside, on the same day, it is a, a thousand shares trading up and five shares trading down. It's the same ratio, two to one. The tree will be 1.00. There's a balance. Volume is balanced with the breadth. The number of stocks up and down balances with the volume of volume in those stocks that are up and down. That's a trend of one. A trend of one is a neutral reading. But sometimes, not very often, sometimes you get extremes. Extremes in trend, rather than being at one, it's at two or three or at four or at five. Now, the highest trend in the history of the stock market, highest trend ever, was 15.50 on January 8th, 1988. Never in the history of the stock market did you see a trend. That's telling you, basically, there's 15 times as much volume in the downside than there should have been based on the ratio of stocks that are moving up and stocks that are moving down. Now, why did you see a trend of 15.50 January 8th? Because January 8th, 1988 was really just a little bit more than a month after the final low after the crash of 1987. I lived through that crash. I lived through that period. And people were still worried the crash was going to continue. And you had a little pullback in early January of 1988. People all of a sudden panicked and panicked and sold stocks. The market didn't go down that much that day. Well, the market actually did go down a lot that day. It was more than 5%. But there was heavy volume of stocks that trading down. Now, January 1988, the market never declined below that level. Market gained thousands of percent since then. So that was a turning point indicator. Well, other people would suggest, wow, so much volume on the downside. Something's terrible. People must know something, right? People must know something in the market going to crash. The reality was that was the final test of the 1987 crash. So that was a positive sign. Now, the second highest trade in history also took place. More, maybe more people who were watching or trading stocks at that time. It was October 10th, 2011. So it was in 2009, same thing. You had a financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Then you had a European banking crisis in 2011. And people, many, many investors thought that the European bank is going to collapse. The market, the German DAX declined over 30% in the two-month period. The SP 500 declined some 19% over the two-month period. It bottomed, I believe, in uh, in early October, and then the bottom took place with this reading of trend of twelve points fifty. Second reason, and again, the market never got below those levels. This is a extreme example of the kind of trending point analysis we do when we see a trend of twelve points fifty. We don't say, "Wow, everybody's telling you this is negative." We know historically, when you see a high trend, it means people are panicking, and when people panic, usually they make the wrong decisions. 
When people panic and they're voting, is usually incorrect. So that's really a sign that the market is not going to continue lower, but the market is going to go higher. Now you may ask, what does that have to do with fundamentals? And the answer is two things. A, you have nothing to do with fundamentals. Zero. Who says, who says the market will have to do with fundamentals? But two, if people panicked, the stock market people panic, it means businesses panicked. If businesses panicked, it means the Federal Reserve panicked. So liquidity hasn't been built up. But we're not analyzing the liquidity. We're not analyzing the business and value of the Fed. The market is telling you there's panic, and there's panic in the market, there's panic in the streets, there's panic all over. And when there's panic, not only do people sell their stocks on high volume, people were liquidating the companies and the federal reserve was lowering rates or so on and so forth. Many of the factors that we can't even measure took place on that day of uh, January 8th, 1988, or that period that allowed the market to go up and allowed the economy actually to continue, continue trading higher. That's one example. Another great example about volumes, as you know, the great uh, decline from April 1930 to July 1932 took place. It was a low volume decline. The market did not show much volume at all during the decline. You know when you saw the volume? You saw the volume in July 1932 at the low, at the final low. So whenever we finally realized that the market was already down from 80% and they decided to sell, that's when you know that the um, that's when the actual low took place. Now we don't only really look at long-term turning points; we look at short-term turning points, short-term indicators. And uh, you know, we have uh, we built a number of indicators. I can uh, review some of them with you if that would make any sense. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guys trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. 
Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I think that for our listeners who are typically long-term investors, what do you think would be the most useful takeaways to help them, I guess, better time their investments? Because on one hand, we are taught in finance that there is no way to time the market. That is, you're often worse off. So maybe even talk about why you think it's possible to time the market and how that could benefit a long-term investor. Okay, well, first of all, most people should not be involved in trading, should not be involved in the kind of things we're talking about. It's professional and it's not easy to do it. You know, professionals and most should do very well financially because the doing thing that most people can't do. But I would say, first of all, an advice to people watching this show is really invested by a good company, company that they understand, the company that they recognize, and they, they can get a sense of whether a stock is overvalued or not. If they look at the dividend, there's one way to recognize it. They can just see the, the stock movement to the stock and make sure the company, the manager of the company has skin in the game. That's a, a general investment. As far as what we've been talking about, which is um, what kind of things are looking at trading points, you know, when you're ready to, when everyone you know is panicking and you're ready to panic as well, that's probably the time that you don't want to panic. That's one thing I can say. But I really can't give a specific information for retail investors. I just give a framework for people who are interested in understanding markets. I hope I can do that. But I really can't give any specific, specific advice on when a person should decide to buy a stock, when a person should try to get into the market. I really can't give specific advice other than to say that uh, the market, the growth always fluctuate, they're always going to rally, they're always going to decline, and you're better off uh, knowing when to get out based on the fact that the stock has done well and knowing when to get in. The fact that the stock has declined is not a reason not to get in. Its fundamentals are strong. But as far as what I do, which is what all I can really talk about is what I do, to kind of indicate and look at we look at five-day volume. Historically, market trading points occur when five-day volume is at an extreme. Well, we just had a big extreme of five-day volume last week after this 13% correction in the Russell, after the 17 correction in the S&P 500. That adds a positive weight to what we're looking at. We look at net upside volume on a five-day basis and the 10-day basis, 12-day basis. Now, we look at the amount of volume of stocks that are moving up and stocks that are moving down. We average it out over five days and 12 days. We look for extremes. We also what's very important is a day count. If the market bottom, like for example, the market bottom on October 12th of 2022, we count the next 10 days and see what took place over the next 10 days relative to what took place historically at market lows. And that gives you some, now again, we have proprietary work. I can't give any, but this is just a framework. You want to count the days from a market low. Well, count the days from a market top. The market uh, made a top now in February 2nd. We actually were very heavily long into February 2nd. We leveraged long for our clients in February 2nd. But a few days later, and during the counts from those days, we found certain unique characteristics like a place in market tops. We found gaps to the upside and gaps to the downside and spike days and volume reversals and so on. So we got out. We actually back in and we're long again because it, now it looked like it was just a regular correction within the bull market rather than the beginning of a major decline. It's hard to know. Everything's probabilities. We look at um, uh, the VIX. We look at the one-day rate of change, the three-day rate of change. Rather than the level of VIX, most people focus on, which is, you know, it's VIX at 28, and it's at 25, and it's at 40, and VIX at 18. We look at the rate of changes, VIX, on a one-day, two-day, and three-day basis. We also look at, at deviation from trend. And if you take eight days average of VIX versus, let's say, the previous 50 days average, and see how it deviated, even to the upside or to the downside. We look at, most people look at 52-week highs in the market. We look at three-year highs in the market as an indication. We look at the five-day, very important thing is the five-day rate of change. Let me tell you why that's important, because one thing is last year this, from this bull market that I believe began on October 12th. I believe a bull market began on October 12th, but most bull markets begin 
With the five-day rate of change of the S&P 500 greater than 7.4%, most bull markets begin where the market had a strong, concentrated five-day gain, a minimum of 7.4%. It's gone as high as 11-12% at the market turning points. We did not get it this time. Our highest five-day rate of change was 6% and change in June off the June lows. We got a lower return off the October lows. So that's something that's lacking. But in any event, in any event, it's a good question what retail investors should look at. I'm sort of trying to give a framework of the kind of things that we do. I really can't. I wish I could give some good information other than to say be disciplined. And you get a sense, you know, you, there are many stocks over the last three years that were highly speculative and way overvalued. And, uh, you know, overvaluation is good because if you can catch a stock when it's trending up when it's overvalued. But for a long term investor, never wants to hold an undervalued stock because Benjamin Graham was right. History shows that if you hold an undervalued stock, eventually it will become undervalued. If you hold an undervalued stock, eventually overvalued. So that alone is a reason to be careful when stocks are trading up and overvalued, but you're going to miss some of the big moves. So I really can't give anything more, <laughs> any more information than I've, I've given. I know it's, it's a difficult game being involved in um, in the stock market. And yeah. why is a good company with good management that's skin in the game? You know, everybody, any stocks they see in the stock market, somebody's owning it. So they're either owning it for the right reason or owning it for the wrong reason. You find a company that management is owning the stock, you can imagine they're owning it for the right reason. You find a company that management is just managing the company, but they don't own stock in the company, they're owning it for the wrong reason. They want to get their salary, they want to get their stock options, whatever, and then immediately liquidate it to cash. But you find a company that's built by something like, you know, Amazon was once a great example, Apple was a great example. You find a company that was very well managed, has a good product, makes good money, and the owners have the skin in the game, not strictly, you know, they're going to see the stock, the stock move up and, and sell the shares if they will exercise their option and sell the shares. Even Tesla was a great example. Elon Musk took the bulk of his, uh, his worth into that company and he managed it. So these are the kind of things I would look at if you want to uh, be a little bit safer. Make sure that, that the managers are skinning the game as well, not just you. Yeah, I think that was very helpful. And I guess two questions for you quick. So you kind of touched on it already. So with your indicators, everything that's telling you, do you think that we we haven't seen a turning point yet than you're suggesting? And I guess the follow-up would be, do you think we've already seen a bottom or the worst is still potentially yet to come? Well, I'll give you the good news and the bad news. Okay. Yes, this is the first I'll give you the bad news. We believe the market bottomed in, in October. We bottomed in October. Now, the market is fighting the Fed. Normally, when the market bottoms, it's, because, and it, it's coincident with the Federal Reserve easing credit. It was very rare for you to see a market low when the Federal Reserve is aggressively tightening credit. But yet, the market bottomed in October 12th, started 10 days since then, and the SP is up 10.07%. So, the market is held a little despite the fact that you've had tremendous uh, monetary tightening. In fact, the S&P made its first low in June, on June 16th, and the S&P is above its level on June 16th. June 16th is when the Fed first started getting aggressive. They raised rates 0.75% in June. 0.75% in July, 0.575% in September, 0.75% in November. So the market is higher than it was when the Fed first started raising rates. Very, very strange. Very non-typical. So the good news is the market is doing well despite the fact that the Fed has been raising rates. That's good news. And the bad news is, is that I understand there's reasons for it. Though. What the market is telling us is that the Fed really hasn't tightened. Because even after the last tightening a couple of days ago, the Fed funds rate is still below the inflation rate. When Paul Volcker got a handle on inflation, he raised the Fed funds rate 10% above the inflation rate. We're now 1% below the inflation rate. So the good news is that the market was telling us they're not tight enough. 
The bad news is that eventually they're going to have to tighten. <laughs> and eventually they're going to have a good bear market, a really good bear market. But eventually they're going to have to tighten if they want to fight inflation. How do we know that if anyone wants to fight inflation? This won't be the first country that didn't fight inflation. Maybe the Fed will decide, to, maybe there'll be some political uh, pressure on them to keep the economy going and, and ignore inflation. Maybe they'll raise the inflation as a boundary from 2% to 4%. We don't know. We all know the market has been rallying, and despite the fact that the Fed is so-called tightening, logically it tells me they really haven't been tightening. So the, the good news is that the market's doing well. The bad news is that they may be tightening ahead, but right now we're bullish. Now, another piece of bad news is that the S&P has gained 10.07% in the 110 days since its low. It had been up as much as 16.685%, but now at the S&P's close, we're 110 days past the lower of 10.07%. Now, let's assume a bull market began on October 12, 2022. That would be the 24th bull market since 1957. Of those 24 bull markets since 1957, 23 of them, actually 20 22 of them showed greater returns than 10.07%. We're second to the last. The worst return by day 110 was 1957. It only gained 8% through day 110 and ultimately gained 32% in the first year off the low. We've gained 10% in 110 days. And, uh, you know, no one likes to be, you know, when there's 24 opportunities, you don't like to be second from the last. So that's a sign that maybe the market isn't acting as, as well as it should, but that doesn't phase us. As long as one historical instance for the market that gained um, less than it did now in a bull market, we'll stick with our bull thesis, especially since we, we have buy signals, buy indicators suggesting the bull thesis. Now, the better news in the NASDAQ is that NASDAQ's closing low was uh, December 28th. NASDAQ has gained 14.26% in 57 days since then. And of the previous 12 bull markets in the NASDAQ since, since 1974, the 1974 bull market only saw a gain of 6% by day 57. 1984 is the only gain of 9.93%. So you have, you have in 1978, it only gained 12.11%. And in 1980, 1990, it only gained 10.31%. So there are many instances in the NASDAQ where the returns were weaker than they are currently. And each of the each of those instances, the returns were phenomenal. The median return of those 12 historical bull markets was 66% within one year of the low. So the, the, the NASDAQ is still in line based on history. Now, you know, we were negative until a few days ago. We went long based on our indicators. And uh, yesterday's decline didn't, in fact, they added some bullish weight to the indicators because there's some panic-like action yesterday in the decline. But we'll be flexible to change our minds. But right now, we're bullish. We think the bull market began in October. And uh, it won't be the greatest bull market because the Fed is raising rates. It may still have a bull market because uh, the Federal Reserve is not as tight as they should be. But once they become as tight as they should be, you know, there'll be trouble ahead. So just got to monitor the market and the economy. She's in the Federal Reserve day by day and watch the indicators. Basically, um, that's where we stand. We like gold. We like the action in gold. We like the action in gold stocks. And it's also suggesting probability that is inflation ahead of us. I mean, gold stocks rallied over 50% from their total lows until the highs in, December, in late January. They, they corrected 20%, so now they're back on the tear, back moving up again. And so too with gold. Gold main came within a few percentage points of its all-time high just a few weeks ago, and now it pulled back sharply, but then it started to rally again. So I think gold and uh, gold stocks are a good place to be on, on the trading basis. And last thing, before I let you go, what advice would you give our listeners from your many years and experience as an investor? What's the best piece of advice you have for them? Well, I know that Kahneman uh, and Tversky in the book about um, the Nobel Prize winning work on heuristics, on decision making, said that the worst decision investors make is selling the good stocks and holding on to the losing stocks. 
So I would say it's a piece of advice. Based on scientific studies, you don't want to hold on to your losing stock, but you want to hold on to your winning stock. Now, how do you define a winning stock? If I lose a losing stock, you have to get into statistics on that. But very often, you have a gain, let me get out. I've lost, or how can I sell it? That a loss is going to come back. That's exactly the opposite. That's one piece of advice. But a piece of advice what I gave earlier, you can buy a good company, a good management, have a skin in the game, and uh, I invest that way. And maybe, you know, be, use common sense and be logical and don't chase stocks that are doing poorly unless you have some good um, technical or database reason to do it. And um, there are methodologies that many of us are aware of and how to how to trade stocks or how to invest in stocks. It's, not, it, it's never been an easy game. It never will be an easy game. If there's inflation ahead of us in the economy, you definitely want to be in stocks for the long term because even in a place like Venezuela and Argentina and Germany in the, in the 1920s, although you didn't keep up with inflation, you came close to keeping up with inflation by investing in stocks. Of course, you had to get out before the final high because the ultimate goal crashed. A lot of history, a lot of information. I really, I really, be, I really wish it would be easy. You know, people get up to buy Bitcoin, buy gold, you know. Buy growth stocks, buy Apple. I, I can't say that. I just use common sense, be flexible. If you're going to buy a company, buy a company whose management is on your side. And there are many, many companies out there that manage that are totally not on your side. And, and people have to be aware of that. I think that was a great piece of advice to end things off today. Before I let you go, though, where can the audience go to learn more about you and everything that you do? Okay, I'd like to thank you, Rebecca, for this interview. Um, Lonely Investing is very, I enjoyed it. It was great. Uh, we have a website, www.miltonberg.com, and there's information there on how to follow what we do. And also, I occasionally tweet on Twitter, and the, my Twitter handle, I guess it's called, is at Berg Milton, at B-E-R-G Milton. There's some phonies that use a series similar own address. You got to be very careful to get the one with the blue check. They don't know it's me. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I'll make sure to add all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on again, Milton. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.